It's summer and it's hot in the kitchen, too hot to cook inside. So for many people, it's time to fire up the outdoor grill. We prep our meal, lay it on the grill and get ready to enjoy the results. But are we putting our health at risk? Some health experts think so. Grilling meat, poultry and fish at high temperatures can produce a meal that could be hazardous rather than healthy. This is what you need to know about grilling. And this is Green Street. Hello and welcome to Green Street Radio, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientific and medical experts, authors, engineers, reporters, and others all here on Green Street to help you understand what's going on around you and how you and your family can live a better and safer life in this crazy, often toxic world. Today on Green Street, we're going to be talking about grilling food and its potential health impacts. For any of you who, like us, like to cook outside when it gets hot, this is information you're going to want to know so that you don't inadvertently put your family's health at risk. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the headlines from the Green Street Environmental Health News Department. I understand there's a problem with cooking with natural gas. What is that about? Every day, millions of Americans rely on natural gas to power appliances such as kitchen stoves, furnaces, and water heaters. But until now, very little data existed on the chemical makeup of the gas once it reaches consumers. A new study finds that natural gas used in homes throughout the greater Boston area contains varying levels of volatile organic chemicals that, when leaked, are known to be toxic, linked to cancer, and can form secondary health-damaging pollutants such as particulate matter and ozone. Between December 2019 and May 2021, researchers collected over 200 unburned natural gas samples from 69 unique kitchen stoves and building pipelines across greater Boston. From these samples, researchers detected 296 unique chemical compounds, 21 of which are federally designated as hazardous air pollutants, including benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, xylene, and hexane. This wow. is your gas stove. This is your, your, your range that you cook on. Yeah. What, how many chemicals did you, <laughs> did you say? 296 unique chemical compounds, but 21 are federally designated as hazardous air pollutants. And, you know, these are cancer-causing chemicals. I'm familiar with benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, xylene, these are hexane. Coming, these are coming from where? These are coming... They're, they're actually in the natural gas that's coming into your stove from a pipe in the street. So yeah. it's really, it's not safe to cook with natural gas. Is that no, what you're saying? No, it's interesting because several of our colleagues who work on or work on environmental issues actually switched from a natural gas stove to an electric stove mm. just because of the whole fracking issue yeah. and so on. And, but, you know, I never really thought about this. Yeah. And, okay. you know, and every restaurant in the world sure. cooks with a gas stove because it's the most efficient way of course to cook. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. The second one is um, from Environmental Health News, and it is entitled Doctors Advocate for Treating Obesity as an Environmental Problem. Obesogens are a subset of endocrine-disrupting chemicals, man-made compounds that alter hormone activity. They are generally defined as any chemical that can cause the human body to produce more fat than it normally would, and can include substances we usually think of as fattening, like sugars or artificial sweeteners. 
However, obesogens are not only found in food. They can enter the body through other consumer products like makeup, shampoos, soaps, plastics, and food packaging. The chemicals are also shed from such products and can accumulate in household dust, which people breathe in. PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, toxic chemicals used in many consumer and industrial products, are another example of obesogens, as is bisphenol A. There's still a huge gap in medical school training when it comes to obesogens. The sheer volume of knowledge medical students are required to learn leaves little room for discussions about environmental exposures. The end result is that doctors often leave environmental exposures out of their practice. For example, a 2015 study of maternal and child physicians found that environmental health assessments were infrequently part of routine counseling of their patients. Yeah, we've been saying this for a while oh, that medical time. school doesn't cover this. Nope. But you know, Patty, we did a show on obesogens. It's got to be 5 years ago. Right, and there and there are some there are some very very good movies out there, including a movie called Fed Up. It's been out for a while now, but it's mm. worth it is definitely worth looking at. It talks about these endocrine disrupting chemicals in great detail with scientists and researchers and medical doctors. So who all agree so you're getting these chemicals in all kinds of products. Yeah, from food to personal care products and to home furnishings and so on. And people are just being exposed all the time. There's no way you could know that, right? It's not No, there's listed. no way. I mean, when somebody's when somebody's overweight, you automatically think that they eat too much or they eat too much of the wrong kind of food, right? Right. And so nobody is putting together the pieces here that say that you could be actually getting fat from these hormone-disrupting chemicals that are a part of your daily life that you're exposed to in small amounts. These are called chronic low-level exposures every day. Yeah. Seems a little unfair, but okay. Yeah, but, it's, but it is something. And, and the other comment that we need to make here is that medical students learn very little about environmental health in medical school. Mm -hmm. I mean, they may be sitting in the back row of some lecture hall learning about, you know, secondhand smoke or cotinine, right? Yeah. And, and that's it. That's all they learn. So especially for pediatricians, I think it's critically important because, you know, a parent brings their child in who's been fine with their asthmatic med medication and all of a sudden it's not working and they're, you know, running to the emergency room with a kid who can't breathe. They finally wind up in the pediatrician's office and the pediatrician doesn't ask them, did you just put a new carpet in the kid's yeah. room? Or yeah. did you just repaint the house? Or did you just buy your child a new, you know, a, a new bedroom set, which yeah. is outgassing formaldehyde and all kinds of things that could be exacerbating their, their asthmatic condition? Yeah. Yeah. This, is a, this is a big, big deal, especially for pediatricians. Okay. Okay, and the last one is from Environmental Health News. Uh, legacy chemicals are contaminating eggs oh, around the world. I thought eggs were safe to eat. No. A recent global study found almost 90% of free-range egg samples from contaminated sites in developing nations exceeded the EU's maximum food limits for toxic pollutants. Plastic waste is a major contributor to the pollution. The researchers found extremely high egg contamination at sites that burned plastic. For example, the e-waste site in Kenya, where the overall highest contaminated egg samples openly burns plastic. Samples from a tofu factory in Indonesia that uses plastic as fuel for burners yielded very high contamination levels as well. 
And when burned, plastics release a large amount of dioxins because they have chlorinated compounds like PVC, which is used to insulate copper cables. Mm. Burning PVC with copper and other metals speeds up the reaction and releases a large amount of these toxins. Burning plastic can also release more than 2,400, that's 2,400, other hazardous chemicals as well as greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change. Dioxins and polychlorinated biphenyls, commonly known as PCBs, are persistent organic pollutants that spread easily into the environment, accumulate in the food chain, and take years to biodegrade. They are linked to health effects such as cancer, hormone disruption, and alterations on brain development. This study illustrates that dioxins and PCBs still pose major health threats to children and families around the world. So burning plastic contaminates the eggs. That's correct. And these are in poor countries where we're shipping all of our plastic waste so they well, can burn it. Yes, and we did have this conversation a couple of weeks ago yeah. where we talked about how China has cut off our plastic waste. I mean, right. they used to accept it and, and do all kinds of things with it. Now, no longer. So now it's going to all these really poor countries and they're burning it. I was interested to see that one of the sponsors of this study uh-huh. was the International Pollutants Elimination Network, IPEN. Right. right. And our guest last week was Vito Buensante, who's from that organization. That's so right. If you didn't hear that, go back and check out that interview. It was really great. Okay. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. This is Green Street Radio, Patty and Doug Wood. You know, there's nothing quite the same as food cooked outside on a grill. Outdoor cooking in the summer has become a standard part of eating for millions of people. But what happens to that food when you cook it over an open flame? Is it the same as food cooked in an oven? Or does cooking over an open flame change the food in a way that can actually be harmful to our health? A few years ago, we had the opportunity to speak with Denise Snyder, who is the Associate Dean for Clinical Research at the Duke School of Medicine. We had so many requests from listeners to replay that interview, we decided we should run it again just to remind people how they can grill their food safely and avoid possible health problems down the road. Here's our interview with Denise Snyder. Let's talk about what actually happens when you go to the grocery store, you buy your steaks or your your burgers or your hot dogs or whatever you're you're planning on grilling, even your chicken or your fish. You get in the kitchen, you take it out of the wrapper, you know, somebody goes outside and fires up the grill and boom. Okay, why is this a problem? Well, let's talk about, um, first of all, what's in common about all these foods? Our red meats, poultry, pork, seafood, all of these foods contain muscle proteins. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what happens is when you apply a really high temperature um, to those muscle proteins, alongside that high cooking temperature, whether it's on the grill or even in your oven, it's going to create a reaction that produces these carcinogenic compounds to form, and they're called heterocyclic amines, or HCAs. HCAs is so much easier to say, Mm -hmm. especially when you're trying to get a a lot of words in. Um, But this is just a, a amino acids plus a creatine that make up these HCAs. And HCAs can damage the DNA of genes. That's what can lead us to cancer development. And so far, we have at least 17 different HCAs that have been identified, you know, that are formed from this high temperature applied to these muscle meats. And that might pose a a cancer risk. So 
I think we're looking at more information coming out in the emerging research that we'll see, especially as people apply more pressure to get to the bottom of some of these research questions. Now, let me just ask you a quick, I know Doug is anxious to ask no, questions, no, no, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really fascinated with yeah, this. So now, for our listeners' information, are any of the muscle proteins that you mentioned, the poultry, the red meats, and the, um, the fish, are any of them better in other words, do do any of them have f- to create fewer of these HCAs? I would say that all the all the muscle protein foods are going to produce a fair number of uh, HCAs. I think you're going to get even larger numbers in things like chicken breast, which oddly enough is one that we are so pushed at eating because it's lighter and leaner mm. and it doesn't have all the fat and we don't have skin on it. But actually what we see when the skin isn't on the outside of the food is you're going to have much more exposure to the heat, direct heat temperature. Um, and then also the other thing is the... Um, um, the PAHs or the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which tend to, you know, happen from fat dripping down on a flame and it causes a flare-up, it coats the food, and that's a harmful exposure as well. And that's also the smoke. That's, and that's right. PAHs the are in the smoke. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the smoke right. and the flame and, okay, and the charring, is that considered, that's a PAH, that black yes, stuff that's that, actually... that black stuff, cut it off. <laughs> that's what I always tell people. If you do have some of that exposure and, you know, you've gotten a little bit of a flare-up or something like that, try to really, even really wash off the food to try to remove some of the exposure. But, of course, what you want to do is prevent it. We want to minimize the exposure. Uh, now, and then, and oddly enough, and I've mentioned this before, but no exposure in the same manner with the vegetables. I mean, still, if you would char a vegetable and it was blackened, I would encourage people to still cut that off. But it's the fat drippings and that type of thing that really causes smoke flare-ups that you see in meats. So I'm going to go back to the HCAs yeah, again. I want to go now, back. Now, the high temperature, this mm-hmm. is a, this is a, these are created by high temperatures cooking muscle proteins. That's right. Um, and if you actually put, and when I've seen many people do it, a piece of foil over the, over the grate and mm-hmm. put their meat on top of that so that it doesn't get, you know, as, um, as burned or as, as blackened as they, you're still creating the HCA because it's, it's the temperature. So it actually could happen either on a grill, it could happen in an oven. That's right. That's right. And um, the one thing that I always point out is that broiling can have the same effect. Charbroiling, broiling, frying, unless you're doing some pan frying at a lower temperature. It's the really high temperature and intense meats. And because we just do so much grilling in the summertime, it's an easy topic to bring up and and talk about exposure. But it really can happen on a regular basis. And, Mm -hmm. And of course, just in general, we want people to eat less meat anyway. Yes, we do. Okay, so let's go beyond the the HCAs, which are created, which are carcinogenic, and the PAHs, which are created, which are carcinogenic. What can we grill safely? I mean, I know you're talking about vegetables. Mm-hmm. And as long as we cut the char off them, they don't, they don't actually create HCAs. That's right. So they would, don't have the protein. They don't have okay. that muscle mass protein. Okay. Can no. I, can I, I just All want to right. go ahead, John. So. You have to <laughs> say something. He's just dying to say something. Well, I, you know, I want to go back to the HCAs, and you said they damage DNA. Is that something that we know for certain? I know this is, you know, a lot of this is emerging science. I mean, are we comfortable saying that for certain? I would say it's, you know, it's limited probability at this point. There is some data 
from the World Cancer Research Foundation, Mm -hmm. or fund, sorry, and the American Institute for Cancer Research. They did a pretty big comprehensive review of all the food, nutrition, physical activity information and how it relates to uh, cancer prevention. They did this globally. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have really put it in that, that category of limited. It's there. There's a relationship, but you can't say, if you do this, it will cause that. Right. We can't well, draw we, that straight line we, from we the exposure to the Yeah, to the we disease. know that. I mean, sure. that. When are we going to actually be able to draw that line? It's I don't know if ever. Maybe never. I don't, you know, with cancer, I, I agree with you. I really don't know if ever that you can say one thing happens we do this and this happens. I mean, we certainly know um, with tobacco exposure, for instance, um, that that there's a, a very strong relationship. But nobody's going to conduct a randomized controlled trial that randomizes people to smoking and non-smoking yeah. to prove right. that point. Sure. And, yeah. they're, and they're not going to do this with barbecued meat or with, uh, you know, exposure to any other potentially cancer-causing chemicals. It's very difficult. It would be a very expensive trial to do, and it's a very difficult um, trial to control. Exactly. I mean, well, you know, we don't live in boxes, and I think that's right. uh, you know we don't live in this little bubble world where we can control absolutely everything. So it's very difficult. And I also really play back to um, that our genes are just one part of it. And just because we have a gene for, say, breast cancer, doesn't mean we'll ever develop breast cancer. So that's why genetics is so controversial too, because just because you have the gene doesn't mean that you will definitely develop that um, cancer that you're at risk for. Genetics loads loads the gun, and the environment pulls the trigger. Right, that's right. There's something that has to initiate it. Something has to turn it on. Well, let's just talk about about the different types of cancer that have been associated with exposures. I mean, I have four studies sitting here in front of me. Um, One is an American Cancer Society study. Actually, it was done by the University of Minnesota. Um, Mm -hmm. That was the pancreatic cancer one. The pancreatic cancer one. Mm -hmm. Um, We have another one that was done at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And that um, says that meat, especially when it's well done, may increase the risk of bladder cancer. And then we have another one. This is back a little bit further, back from 2006, talking about another study that was done uh, at Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center, showing a relationship to charred meat chemical and prostate cancer incidence or higher incidence. So we're talking about some some serious things. Some you know pancreatic cancer, which is one of the most um, problematic and and uh, lethal cancers, mm-hmm. um, and then bladder yes. cancer and prostate cancer. What other types of cancer have been associated that you know from stomach studies? cancer? Okay, is one. And I, th- I believe colon cancer as well. Okay. And there may be even some, you know, relationships that we don't quite understand because our exposure can really be, we, we often think about exposure kind of translating itself through the bloodstream or something like that. So mm-hmm. those types of exposures where it's just not necessarily in one area and so it can just land in our tissues. Right. Um, I know that the Long Island Breast Cancer Study, which was actually looking for environmental contaminants and higher incidences of breast cancer on Long Island several years ago, actually did show one positive relationship and that was between higher incidence of breast cancer and exposure to PAHs. And they were clear in that PAHs could come from vehicular emissions, but PAHs also come from backyard barbecues and from smoking cigarettes and anything else that's burning wood stoves or even your fireplace. That's right. That's right. There's, and so there's so many exposures, it's really hard to say, okay, 
you know, what do I do with this information? Yeah. You know, how do I how do you tease how do I this apply out? this in my regular life and and also live. You know, yeah. I think it's very important that, you know, one of the messages I like to get out to cancer survivors is there isn't one thing that you did wrong to cause your cancer. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of things that we can do, though, to maybe prevent the next cancer or a recurrence and realize that the world of cancer is pretty darn gray. Yeah. I mean, it's not after black all, and after white. After all these yeah. years. Yeah. After um, all these years, yeah. it's a very frustrating disease. Unlike, you know, cardiovascular disease where things are a little bit more clear-cut, sure. cancer's tricky. Yeah, cancer seems to be very tricky. And, you know, I'd like to start talking about um, some interesting information that I read about preparing meats and actually being able to reduce the amount of HCAs that are um, produced if you prepare meats in certain ways. Yes. So, and, you know, and also talk about roasting and and slow cooking meats. I mean, you know, one of our favorite things is, uh, you know, pot roast and and uh, and and stew if we ever have meat. So I guess we're okay by slow cooking those things. And fruits and vegetables. Well, of course. <laughs> I mean, I, I think Let's I think that you're those. I think that you're uh, you know no, you're you're great. you're advocating you know reduction of meat in our diet in general, and I agree one hundred percent. The National Cancer Institute has actually talked about the use of a microwave oven to partially cook meat before you put it on a grill, and that actually lessens the uh, the levels of CHAs or HCAs. I'm sorry. And also, we have seen some studies about using spices that can inhibit the creation of harmful chemical compounds. Well, um, the one thing about spices, I think there are some different spices out there that are being studied. I think it's a uh cumin and curcumin, and um, I'm not very good with the pronunciations Mm -hmm. of some of these things, but also uh, in terms of uh, marinating and things like that as another thing that sort of protects the meats, and in particular, uh, folks can use the citrus-based marinades seem to do very well at protecting our meat from the HCA formation. And and what about this microwaving for for two minutes? uh, Would that yeah, that seemed to be a dramatic, I mean, they were talking about a 90% reduction in HCAs. Right. And I think what uh, one thing that microwaving does is it limits the cooking time. Mm-hmm. So how much time you'd actually have to put something on the grill. And that's another reason that I often recommend if somebody's going to put some uh, meat on the grill to think about doing more kebabs mm-hmm. and things of that nature because then there are smaller pieces of food. They don't take as long to cook. Um, we certainly want people to get the right internal temperature on their foods because we don't want them to have exposures in in another area of having undercooked food. But uh, they can use a thermometer and things like that too. Did we actually come up with a temperature that a temperature that at which point we should be concerned? How high does it have to get? Four hundred degrees? Four hundred and fifty? I would say, you know, anything over the 350 mark is probably putting you into a category of exposing to a high temperature. And most um, folks, when they're doing the charbroiling and the grilling and the broiling, are broiling at high temperatures, you know, Mm -hmm. 400, 450, 500 degrees. We can cook things on lower temperatures and uh, cook for longer periods like roasting, you know, which uses a much more moist method of keeping our food um, moist and um, not drying out. Okay, so from my perspective, some some lightly grilled zucchini, organic zucchini, and, you know, just a bunch of, you know, really nice salads, uh, you know, quinoa with avocado and scallions and tomatoes, and maybe a nice potato salad, and, you know, nice coleslaw, and 
um, this would be a, a great cookout for me. For, well, we've know, talked about, we often talk about using meat as a condiment rather than a, you know, a, a, a main course. Than the main course. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, the, and as far as meat servings anyway, we should really be reducing our uh, consumption of meat to about you know, 18 ounces a week or less. What, um, what does that translate into practically? What's you know, how many hamburgers a three ounce is that? portion is probably the size of the palm of your hand, Patty. Okay, <laughs> so, so that's it's three not ounce. very big. Mm-hmm, that's about okay. three ounces, and that would be six times a week. So, and a lot of times, what happens is exactly what Doug mentioned, which is you know we're trying to re- use it as a condiment or just have some of it. I mean, first of all, it's good for our health. Uh, second of all, I really think it's good in terms of environmental impact um, if we eat less meat. Mm-hmm. No right. question. Let's let's get into that a little bit. Well, I want before I mean, we do that, I just want to ask about you know a lot of the things that we talk about, Denise, on this program are we talk about cumulative effects over time. Mm -hmm. Is that the case that we're talking about here, where we're talking about a prolonged ingestion of these things over a period of years? I mean, is that part of what's leading to the cancer? Uh, It definitely could be cumulative effects. I mean, I I think about cancer a lot that way. And I think if you were somebody who was grilling every single day, you're going to be put into a different category of risk than somebody who doesn't do it at all. But that's not really practical either to think all or nothing. So um, I think this is just one thing. You know, there are many. And what you're grilling really matters. I mean, if you can mix it up a little bit, you know, put some things on the grill, reduce the temperature, microwave. If you can do a bunch of little things, Mm -hmm. I think that Mm -hmm. can also have a positive impact. Mm -hmm. And not to grill and not to really consume at all, if at all possible, any processed meats, hot dogs. In particular, yeah, sausages. That They're is, just that is really, a question, really harmful. That is a question that I had for you. Um, the meat, and we were going to get back to meat itself and the environmental impact and so on, but let's just talk about fresh meats as opposed to processed meats and mm-hmm. the other things that you might find in processed meats that you don't find in, in the fresh meats, and then those things on top of the HCAs or the PAHs. I mean, would you eat a hot dog? <laughs> Would I eat a hot dog? Yeah, there you I, go, Denise. It's the question. I'll tell you, I really don't like hot dogs. And I, I actually get very upset with my family when they choose to have hot dogs. And I know it's tough to be married to a dietitian and have a dietitian <laughs> for a mother. But those are the two things where I just went. I just, I would really prefer that they never exist in my household. But can I say that that never happens? No. But if it's my choice, I'm not eating a hot dog. <laughs> I'll go for a veggie dog, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's talk about what's in processed meats. Oh, yes, the processed meats. They have lots of nitrates, and those nitrate nitrate compounds to cure the meat, and, uh, and often salt cured. And all of these things combined make it not so good for our health. And that is actually one of the recommendations from the American Institute for Cancer Research, is they say, no processed meats, avoid them. It is one of the foods that we come out saying, mm, people should really not have this. You've been listening to Green Street Radio, Patty and Doug Wood, and our special guest today, Denise Snyder, Associate Dean for Clinical Research at Duke School of Medicine. Green Street Radio is a production of our nonprofit organization, Grassroots Environmental Education, and airs on WBAI-FM in New York City. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. 
Connect with us at our website, greenstreetradio.com. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. And tune in next week for another edition of Green Street Radio. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.